Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. The question isn't where, Constable, but when. Wait till you read book seven, Black Cried. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Sarah Merck, online editor for the feminist pop culture magazine Bitch, is here to talk comics, which she consumes and makes. And about finding good models for non-traditional relationships. Which is hard, you guys. Disney lied to us. This episode is also brought to you from two time zones. Yeah, Greta is in Alaska this week. They've been having crazy weather up there, right? Yeah, all last week it was over 90 degrees, which is really confusing for Alaskans who don't have air conditioning and they wear shorts when the snow starts to melt. And now this week there's a fire nearby, but in Alaska we don't put fires out because the woods are largely uninhabited and it's good for the trees to burn. But Fairbanks is in a bowl, so now the town is filled with smoke and everything smells a little like campfire, so that's kind of confusing. What's the weather like in Chicago? Trisha, why are you asking me? You're there. Because you're the weather nerd with all the weather apps. That's fair. The weather. It's a thing. How many cities, tell them, how many cities do you keep track of the weather on via your interwebs phone? Thirteen. Thirteen? Well, there's Chicago, there's Fairbanks, there's Asheville, there's Walnut Creek, Downeyville, Washington, D.C., Juneau, New York, Hayes Valley, Northfield, and then, of course, you know, Krakow, Seoul, and Paris. What? Well, they're all where I lived or a friend or family member lives, but it's also a pretty good global spread, I think. Sarah Merck swung through town on a road trip recently and stopped by the studio. She's the online editor for the feminist pop culture magazine, Bitch. She makes wicked cool historical comics and editorial cartoons. So I didn't actually admit this to Sarah, but I've had a hard time jumping on the feminist bandwagon because I feel like most of the feminists I see are super smug man-haters. Ouch. Too far? Yeah, girl. Don't call me girl, sir. Hey! Well, I'm a feminist, and I want a raise. Trisha, we don't get paid to do this. So I'm making 73 cents on no dollar? Yeah, and 73 cents on no dollar is still no dollar. Okay. The thing is, I really want to be a feminist. I just find it hard to navigate all these strong personalities to find a way for me to join the movement. But Sarah totally did that for me. I was a science camp counselor. Oh, And science nice. camper in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then I decided not to become an archaeologist and instead to go to school in Iowa. And then I moved back after school. So was there a lot of fake mm-hmm. fossil digging at camp? No, real fossil digging. Real fossil digging. Real what? fossil digging. Oh, this is legit. Oh, yeah. It was, if you want, if you're a teenager who is very serious about a career in archaeology, the place to go is the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry hands-on summer archaeology camp. Because you actually go out to, like, digs and do some digging. It is 0% like Indiana Jones. Oh, no. And <laughs> <laughs> I would hope for at least 5 to 10%. 0%. No hats. No hats. No, no hats. rolling balls. No, like, cool secret passageways in libraries that lead to Masonic uh, dungeons. And it's about 100, 110 degrees outside. And you're oh, on the mountain. No. And you're given a dental pick. No. And they're like, go find something that's about the size of half of your pinky fingernail. And looks just like all the other rocks, but has a slightly different sheen to it. And that could be 
like the tooth of a prehistoric mouse, a hypotragulus. (laughs) (laughs) This is what taught me to be a quitter. I think. <laughs> That's such an important it's lesson. I know learn. it's so important. About thirty minutes into the eight-hour-long daily dig, I'd be like, "Well, I'm over this. I'm gonna read the book I brought." So you were allowed to just sit down with your book. I would go to like the far side of the mountain. You know, I'd be like, "Oh, I'm gonna go do a dig over there, right around the corner, <laughs> right around the corner, and just sit there and read a book for a while." I kind of want to talk about that idea of learning how to be a quitter though because I do think there's something there I think we're especially this generation we were encouraged so much to join as many things as possible you know and you're not really successful unless you're participating in like 17,000 extracurricular activities Mm -hmm. but I think there does come a point for your own mental health where you have to just be like I can't do this yeah and for me a lot of the joy of being a quitter is saying I'm not going to take it anymore Exactly. this isn't good for me or I'm not happy doing this and deciding that you want to focus your energies on other things. So that applies not just to summer camp, but to college classes, uh, to extracurricular activities, to relationships is a big one. Learning how to quit a relationship has been a big thing for me, but it's not a failure. It's actually a success, I think, to be able to say this doesn't fit with my life. I'm not going to spend time on it. Well, it's empowering. Well, and I mean, there would be so much less pain at the ending of relationships if people ended them when they knew they wanted to instead of self-destructing for months or years, right? I mean, it's just crazy how people can't say, like, let's stop doing this, but they can say, let's just be terrible to each other. Yeah, you know, the way that I've been talking about it and thinking about it is that people feel like they need to find some excuse to break up. Like, if you're just seriously unhappy, it's hard to express that. And so you do something shitty that then makes the person angry at you and you can point to it and you can be like that's why we broke up I cheated or he cheated rather than just we were unhappy and decided that we should stop being unhappy together so is this the kind of stuff that we're gonna read about in sex from scratch Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little about that project yeah so I'm working on this book it's called sex from scratch and it's a guide to non-traditional relationships Uh, it's coming out next spring uh, from microcosm publishing and basically I've always felt like there's no good role models for the kinds of relationships that I want to have. I don't put a lot of stake in religion or in tradition, and that's the way that we make a lot of decisions in our relationships and decide what's moral and what's good is looking at either what our parents' and grandparents' relationships look like or what our religious texts tell us to do. Typical terms that we use to define relationships yeah, exactly. are changing, too. Yeah, used to, there used to be a much more locked-down model of what a relationship looked like. You know, you are expected to get married, you're expected to be straight, you're expected to be monogamous, you're expected to date one person and have, like sweetheart love and then you know buy a house have kids be in the suburbs and now we have there's a lot more accepted to have different types of relationships but there's not a lot of good role models for them so I find that frustrating myself as I try to figure out what I want my relationships to look like I feel like I kind of have nowhere to look and so I decided to embark on this project of interviewing people about their relationships and what they've learned the hard way and glean from them their knowledge and put it into this book another idea behind it is sort of rules for people who make their own rules. And it's not rules like how to snag a man and get married to him. Ten ways. (laughs) Ten ways to keep the magic alive. (laughs) But instead, it's coming down to a lot of the conversations I've had revolve around trying to be really honest. So rather than just like, try chocolate syrup, it's, (laughs) it's like, try being more honest. Once somebody's dating somebody, I just assume it's going fine. You know, if somebody goes on like a date, I'll be like, oh my God, how was it? Right. Like, what did you think about him? What did what did you guys talk about? Um, what sort of things did you bring up? You know, was she cool? Was What, what did you think? But then once you're, they're dating, you're just like, well, they must love each other. Right. <laughs> and there's like no more discussion after that point. And so I think it's good to keep sort of talking about it and checking in and 
and discussing what works and what doesn't work. Personally, I've come to realize that I like have trouble bringing up problems or when I don't like something and instead I tell myself that I'm crazy and it's not a problem and um, it builds into like a resentment volcano Yes. that then I express in some sort of insane way Yes. like <laughs> a year later, six months later, weeks later. And so I've been trying to get better at complaining more. You know, yeah. when you have a problem at your job, you're like, I should flag this with HR. And <laughs> I think I think that in relationships too, where I'm like, oh, I should flag this because I know it's going to be gnawing at my brain for the next six months if I don't like point it out right now. Who's my HR rep for my life? But your HR rep is you. Oh, okay. It turns out. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. That is hard. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot harder. <laughs> oh. You have to do all the hiring and firing for your own life. <laughs> I was told I don't have hiring and firing <laughs> capability. So I think I saw, as I Google stalked you earlier today, a drawing that I really loved. Oh, yeah? That was, I really just have a crush on your bookshelf. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And so can you talk a little bit about how your art is sort of really fun, whimsical, single panel drawings that you did and then like whole comics that you created? Can you talk a little about that evolution for you of like expressing not just artistic ideas, but sort of political ideas through this medium? Yeah, I do a lot of different comics. Most of them are just for fun. The biggest, more serious one has been a series of comics about Oregon history. So nonfiction comics about little known and marginalized stories from Oregon's past. So more than just... Like the wagon trains, because that's what comes to my mind. Do you mean the Oregon Trail? Oh, that, yeah. That is what I meant, <laughs> The actually. wagon trains. Uh, no, there are none about the wagon trains. Um, there's one, for example, about the founding of Portland's Black Panthers. Oh, wow. Um, there's one about the oldest continuously occupied city in North America that was flooded by a dam by the Army Corps of Engineers in the 1950s. And those were really fun to put together and really interesting. And that was like a three-year process that they were all published last year, and it was with 10 different artists, so that was great. And then... Just for fun, I do comics on my own about things in my life. Like the one you just mentioned, I was at actually somebody who became my boyfriend at his house and I was looking at his bookshelf and I was just like, wow, I love this bookshelf. I love the books on it. I love how messy it is. I just love the details. So I kind of got a crush on his bookshelf. Sometimes the experiences in my life fit into text, but a lot of times I want to make them into an image. And I know anybody who makes comics would relate to this, that they just think like, oh, this would be a, this would be a good comic. I really want to make this as a comic. Either you can do one image, like this drawing of this bookshelf, and it can just capture what you're feeling, or something where there's a lot of kind of like emotional energy involved where you want to draw what a person's face looks like. That's I really love that you have that artistic flexibility. I'm a terrible artist. Oh, yeah? I just would never, you know, I, I just don't have that option as like communicating things through image that way. Yeah, I mean, I would disagree with you because I think there's a story that we tell ourselves, which is that we're not good at being artists. All kids draw when they're young. And then there's a certain period when we say, never mind, I'm not an artist. That kid's a better artist than me. Right. Every class can only have one artist, a yeah. kid who is good at art. <laughs> and if you're not that kid, you never draw again. And it's been a real process for me trying to keep drawing and keep expressing myself. And I don't consider myself a good artist at all, but I love doing it and I do it all the time. I mean, there's this really great artist named Linda Berry who did this book. Yeah, I would I would recommend doing what she does, which is she says when you're talking on the phone and you're doodling. Yeah. Everyone does that and sort of appreciate that. And then think about if you wanted to, you could actually make those into something real that you share with your friends or share with your family. My favorite thing that I do is a monthly newsletter that's kind of like a Christmas letter, but every month of the year. Oh, that's super That's cool. so great that I send to about 30 friends. And it's a low stakes thing where I can draw and it can look bad. Right. But it's okay. It's not going to be a book. Right. It's a letter that I send my friends. They will love it no matter what it looks like. You don't have to be like a professional artist. Right. If drawing makes you happy or if there's something you want to express, you can express it and it can look like 
stupid stick figures. But <laughs> if you're just sharing it with your friends, I guarantee you they will still love it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I feel like Greta's now going to send you drawings in the mail. I would love that. <laughs> in college and in high school, I fell in love with independent comics and alternative comics. A lot of those artists are not very good artists, but they're good storytellers. And they've decided that this is the way they're going to tell their stories, and it's a cheap and fun medium to share stories in. Well, and you mentioned Linda Berry. I mean, her style is so distinctly her, which uh-huh. is part of what makes it so appealing. And I'm sure, I'm sure some people look at those comics and say they're not very well drawn. When I was in college, I taught comics in a prison, and I brought in Linda Berry and was like, they're going to love this. I love this. These guys are going to love this. The guys hated it. And they were like, it's so, it's like so stupidly drawn. If they're wow. like, they're like, it's like Kathy. I was like, no, it's not like Kathy. <laughs> it's terrible. It was terrible. Because, um, you know, they were into comics that were more like the classic Marvel, Superman clean style. Lines. The, the clean lines, sort of like muscular people. Not Linda, Linda Berry, if you're coming from that background, looks like a mess. But yeah. I love it. I love the way that it looks. And to me, I connect with that better than with like a smooth line Superman. I think getting into those kind of comics early on, too, helps people think of comics and art as something that's more accessible. Whereas if you only ever see pristinely paneled DC and Marvel sort of way that comics exist, you don't know that comics are also these other things. Mm -hmm. And had no idea that there were all these other things out there. You need those evangelist people to kind of welcome you into the new nerddom. Mm -hmm. They just go, here's this book. Read this now. Mm -hmm. And they pick your next thing for you. Yeah, I think comics particularly has a problem with the mainstream image of comics and the marketing budgets of comics are toward those big Marvel, DC, Vertigo image, those kinds of imprints that make comics that I'm completely uninterested in. You know, mm-hmm. but those are what people think of when they think of comics, and that's what's in a lot of traditional comics shop. You know, that's who get the blockbusters made about them. And so if you're into indie comics or anything alternative, you have to seek it out, and you have to go looking for it. I wonder if the world of growing up with the Diary of a Wimpy Kid as sort of like mm-hmm. a must-read has changed that at all. This idea of like, this isn't a bookstore and it's a stick figure. Yeah, yeah. You know what inspired me growing up was this Amelia's Notebook by Marissa Moss. I remember it was excerpted in American Girl magazine. It's like a fake journal for young adults and it looks like a composition book, but it's floppy and it's this girl yes. writing about her family and she writes and she draws like stick figures and it's this amazing book. It's books like that that really encouraged me to keep drawing and keep writing and integrate those things or also Harriet the Spy kept a journal yeah really into Harriet the Spy and so I I think my first journal was a spy notebook that I would keep about my neighbors (laughs) (laughs) and uh 642 walk to dog (laughs) yeah (laughs) um no I think I was really mean actually (laughs) I think it was more like maybe like a mean girl's notebook a burn book of some sort a burn book but only for me (laughs) I was like one of those loner kids who was like, just didn't like anybody. Uh, Now I like everybody. Um, You do? I do, yeah. I like pretty much everybody. Then I also keep a written journal and I write down all of the movies and books that I consume, which is essential because I I forget that I don't do that. And then I consider blogging and social media a journal too. This might sound dumb, but like I have a really active Twitter and Instagram, and I use that as a journal. Totally. And it seems like part of this book process for you is this Tumblr, right, that you're working on? Yeah, and I'm working on this Tumblr. It's Sex from Scratch is the Tumblr. And that's where I'm putting all the documentation from the book. So I did a bunch of interviews with people and have been editing them and putting them up there. Is sex nerdier now than it's ever been? Well, I think people are interested in talking about sex theory more now than they've ever been. But I'm not sure, because I was just reading this Nora Ephron book, a collection of essays 
That's called Crazy Salad. And she's writing about sort of feminist movement in the 70s. And there were some really nerdy discussions going on in <laughs> the feminist movement in the 70s. Let me tell you, there were like consciousness raising groups <laughs> of like women getting together and talking about their sex lives in a really in-depth way. And um, that's not something that I've ever done. <laughs> I don't get together with a group of friends like a book club and analyze our sex lives and whether we're being feminist or what. And I work for a feminist magazine. So if anybody should be doing that, it's me. <laughs> um, but instead, I think people, uh, at least myself and my friends, are really interested in sort of having an ethical framework for sex and learning from other people and learning from books about what their relationships and sex lives could look like and really sort of making it a course of study in kind of a nerdy way. You know, I've never gotten super into studying gender theory or studying queer theory, and I know that's a big part of a lot of people's lives is studying that and then thinking about how it applies to themselves. So sort of through this nerdy route, making practical, logistical, and personal changes in their own lives, like reading about, oh, gender is a social construct, and then being like, whoa, how is my gender a social construct? How does that actually affect what I wear or what sports I play or what I eat for breakfast? Um, but for me personally, it's been more like... Um, practical course of study of feeling you know of, of thinking about like when do I feel feminine when do I feel masculine when do I feel like that's a problem when do I what what do I do in relationships that I feel like is a is dependent on gender and when does that line up with what I actually want to be doing and and what is a story that I should throw out so is that nerdy in a good way I think it's nerdy in a good way yeah and I think a lot of people now are interested in making their relationships line up with their ethics and with their values, which is becoming more and more a self-defined process. So when you think values, I think religious values, but I think people are now more building sort of a value set for themselves and are saying, my values are feminist values and they're like nerdy values that I'm <laughs> cool with these parts of myself. And that leads people to having to orient their sex lives and relationships to line up with what they've decided is important for themselves and what sort of basis they want to follow. Instead of it just being the good book, it's the whole bookshelf. That's a really good metaphor, actually, because it's like, you know, what books do you want to put on your bookshelf? Some of them are ones you write yourself. Some of them are ones you get from the library. Some of them are ones your friends have handed to you. And so can you tell me a little bit about how you describe your personal feminism? Well, the way I describe it to people at parties, when they put me on the spot and they say, you work for the feminist magazine, bitch, do you hate men? Um, <laughs> what I say is that feminism is about recognizing the rules of society and then deciding which of those rules we want to break and which we want to keep in place. All those kinds of rules that relate to race, class, ethnicity, and gender and religion and sexuality. Recognizing and articulating those is a big part of feminism and deciding which are bunk and which are helpful. Do you feel like it's important to have the ability to say sort of what your cheats are and just acknowledge them instead of trying to be sort of be the perfect feminist all the time? Like uh, what's, what's a cheat? Well, like my example would be that Michael Pollan was just on Stephen Colbert and he admitted to eating Cracker Jack, mm. even though he knows that Cracker Jack is terrible and everything about his being is to try to get people to not eat Cracker Jack. But he'll own up but to the fact. But it's still delicious. But it's still delicious. So like, you, are there? <laughs> you're totally hooked on Scandal, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I do like Scandal. It's like, I don't really like the idea of there being like a perfect feminist who does everything right. That person sounds really annoying. Yeah. You know, that person sounds like they're probably pretty self-righteous. Right? That sounds and smug. A big, <laughs> you know, we were talking about I like everybody, but I, I can't hold with condescension or self-righteousness. So it's like with anything, you know, I mean, with cheats, I mean, the way that I would describe it is that like, I like to figure out what stories from society I want to apply to my life and which ones I don't. So a lot of times 
I dress and I think in a pretty traditionally feminine way. Right now I'm wearing like a mini skirt and like cute sandals and I painted my toenails red. Your sandals are really cute. They're really cute. <laughs> and um and this is the way that I like to be, feminine and like very mainstream looking. Um but that's a choice that I've made for myself. And some days I wear like gross overalls with like Birkenstocks. Well, yeah, but that's because you're in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I think there's this image of like, if you're feminist, you have to like have to look a certain way or always be a certain way. And I see it more as I want to live the kind of life that I want to live. In that way, there is no cheating. I mean, cheating is being condescending toward other people or judging their choices or um, holding everyone to your same standard and expecting them be, to be the same way that you are. I think if you're doing that. That's cheating because really you're just trying to make everyone be like you. All right. So feminists who think that you're a perfect feminist, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) I love that. Thanks again to Sarah Merck, online editor for Bitch Magazine. We're looking forward to our new book, Sex from Scratch. And in the meantime, we'll follow the project's Tumblr at sexfromscratch.tumblr.com. We asked you nerd listeners to help us beef up our summer reading list and got some great voicemails. Hi, nerdettes. This is Logan Jaffe calling. Um, I was just going to recommend a book that I think would be great to read over the summer. It's called Edisto by Paget Powell. Very summary. takes place in South Carolina. Get on it. Bye. Hello. I'm responding to the homework request for books that we're reading over the summer. First is The Yellow Birds, which is a novel about two soldiers in Iraq in 2004. So I'm just kicking that off now. In addition... The Path to Power, the first of Robert Caro's series on Lyndon Baines Johnson. And finally, The Ghost Wars, about Afghanistan, the Mujahideen, the rise of the Taliban, the rise of Al-Qaeda, and America's influence in the world. Hi, this is Erin, and I'm calling to tell you why you should have the Dresden Files audiobook on your summer reading list. First of all, it's read by James Marsters. And he does a really fantastic job. You will remember him from Buffy as Spike. He's really great at it, and it makes it super enjoyable. Second, it all takes place in Chicago, which is really fun. Um, As someone living in Chicago, I feel like I'm there in the story, and that's really awesome. Third, it's quick, it's easy, it's light reading, it's great beach reading. It's great to listen to while you're jogging or out in the park or laying on the beach, and it's super super awesome. He's a wizard detective, and he hunts down supernatural bad guys with his motley crew of friends and family, and I highly recommend it. Thanks. Hey, nerdettes. This is Jennifer Brandel calling, and I just wanted to recommend for your summer reading list uh, magazines. I think they are more transportable. They are, You feel less guilty when you smack a fly or an ant or some sort of insect with them because they're not as precious as books. You can lose them easier, and they cost you less if you lose them, which I do all the time. And, um, well, I guess the one downside is that when you have sunscreen on your hands, the news ink gets all over you, which might not with books. But um, regardless, I would highly recommend magazines. And also taking magazines from a gym or an airport or a coffee shop for free um, when no one is looking. That's a good way to kind of test out some magazines at a very low, low cost of nothing. Okay, thanks. Call and tell us what else should be on our summer reading list at 312-600-5638. 
Now it's time for homework. Trisha, what are you assigning the eager minds who listen to Nerdette? I think you all need to go watch this weird trailer for season two of HBO's The Newsroom we found. The show comes back this weekend. And you're going to want to claw your eyes out a little in confusion when you see it, just as a warning. As Nerdette contributor Rebecca Polson said when she first saw it, it's like if the Tony Soprano dream episode mated with U2's Joshua Tree album. And not in a good way. Could that happen in a good way? To be fair, I don't think so. What's your homework, Greta? Well, there's this great Fast Company story making the rounds, which you should definitely check out. It's about how you can now filter Yelp reviews to tell you where all the hipsters and yuppies are. Ostensibly, it's to avoid them, but I guess you could also stalk them if you wanted. Find a link to that and more musings at nerdatpodcast.com. All right, that's it for today. And of course, many thanks again to Sarah Merck for talking with us. And thanks to our intern, Claire, who we need to congratulate on her promotion to prefect Of Ravenclaw. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. But what if he did? This is Poddington Bear. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.